0: Dig History Podcast On September 21st, 1905, a suitcase floated to the water surface in Winthrop Harbor, a shallow 6-foot deep man-made channel about 3 miles north of Boston Harbor. Stuffed inside the seemingly innocuous case was the torso of a, quote, young and beautifully formed woman whose intestines and stomach had been removed, along with her extremities and her head. The Boston Globe splashed the headline across its front page the next day. Dismembered body of girl found in suitcase floating on the tide at Winthrop. Below the larger-than-life letters, the true nature of the crime was printed. Death probably due to peritonitis after unsuccessful operation of a criminal nature. And there it was. A dismembered body was found floating in the harbor in an unassuming olive green suitcase. But the real scandal was that the body had recently undergone an illegal operation. An abortion. An operation so common that everyone reading the paper that day knew exactly what the headline referred to but a crime so sensationalized that no one could utter its name. I'm Elizabeth garner maserick And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. <music>
1: this episode is part of our true crime series. We're discussing true historical crimes, which is a genre that's wildly popular with a huge audience from television series to books to podcasts. I personally love true crime, but I'll admit that often these popular series gloss over the important historical context that made the crime and or murder impactful during the time. I mean, let's face it. People are killed every day, but sometimes crimes and murder strike such a cultural thread that they become sensationalized, and people just can't get enough of the story. And often, that's where history comes into play. What was it about the crime that fascinated people so much? Surely it wasn't just the crime itself, because those happen every minute of every day. No, there was some cultural chord that was struck, making the crime interesting to people because of the cultural context in which the crime was committed. So in this series, we're revisiting some historical crimes and giving you the historical context that made these crimes truly fascinating.
0: When the olive green suitcase holding the dismembered torso of a young woman was fished out of the water in Boston, 1905, people took notice. It's a gruesome and strange crime. But besides the need to find out who the woman was, and who did this to her, it was also imperative for police to find out where she got her abortion. In the early 20th century, abortion was illegal, but was performed at a high rate, about the same rate as it had been performed for thousands of years before that. But what was different in the 20th century, as opposed to earlier times, was that the policing of abortion was more intense. By the 1880s, abortion was a crime in almost every state, yet hundreds of thousands of women successfully received them from doctors, midwives, abortionists, or by self-induction, with none being the wiser except the woman and possibly her helper or partner.
1: However, many women also died from abortions, usually from infections caused by contaminated instruments or unclean surroundings while the operation was performed. For years, women had been dying as a result of abortions performed in illegal medical parlors in cities like Boston, New York, and even Boise, Idaho. Abortion was the crime that everyone knew about, but no one talked about. In fact, when a doctor was asked in 1920 whether public opinion in the U.S. sanctioned abortion, they answered, yes, it did, but only in the bounds of secrecy. So, essentially, abortion was fine for oneself or loved one when needed, but not for anyone else.
0: And so when the dismembered torso of a shapely woman was found crammed into a suitcase in the harbor, the sensation wasn't only the gory details of her dismemberment, but the apparent botched abortion she received before death. But the social constraints of the time made it so that people spoke and wrote in coded language. The initial Boston Globe story gave just a single reference to a, quote, criminal operation, that had been performed on the body. That small detail, the mention of a criminal operation, was all anybody needed to hear in order to know exactly what the true crime was in the story. This woman had had an abortion, and the sensationalism of such an operation, mixed with the gruesome way her body was disposed of, made the suitcase mystery, as the case came to be called, a crime so awful that the soul revolts in horror.
1: Abortion was illegal for the most part in America since the 1880s. There's a lot of backstory as to how abortions became illegal, who could still get them, and how they were performed. We'll go into that a bit here, but for a more detailed history of abortion, check out our three-part series on abortion and birth control in America, as well as our look at global reproduction practices in our iTunes feed or on the website at www.digpodcast.org.
0: And a note on how historians learn about supposedly illegal actions and people's thoughts about them. Many of the voices and actions of the underserved in America, mainly non-white, wealthy men, are found in court records. Uh, This means that the marginalized, so women, people of color, immigrants, anyone who did not have a prominent voice in American popular culture, are often hard to hear in history. And this is why for many years, traditional histories didn't tell these people's stories because their stories weren't on the surface. It wasn't until the 1960s, 1970s, when women's historians, historians of color and social historians started digging and finding these voices that we really get a better sense of what was going on historically besides what prominent white men were doing. And one of the ways that we find those voices is through court records.
1: One of the earliest American court cases involving abortion was Rex v. Hallowell in 1745. Reviewing this case from Connecticut allows us to explore the use of abortifacients or ways to induce abortion. There were countless recipes, manuals, diaries, letters, and medical books from the era that list ingredients used to restore menses. These were called amenagogues. By the middle of the 18th century, it was no longer believed that the medieval idea of quickening happened when the fetus was endowed with a soul. Quickening was, however, understood as the point that the fetus became more than an inanimate object. At this point, a woman could be certain of a pregnancy because she could now feel the fetus moving, usually around four months' gestation. Before quickening, women and physicians could view a lack of menses as taking the cold or an obstructed or blocked menses. All kinds of different illnesses could have caused this. Amenagogues were used to restore or unblock the menses as they caused uterine contractions or purging. They were abortifacients as well. It's important to note that ridding the body of a fetus before one felt the quickening was not a crime. That didn't come until the 19th century.
0: In 1812, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled in Commonwealth v. Bangs that an abortion before quickening was not a crime. In this case, Isaiah Bangs prepared and administered an abortifacient potion to a woman. He was freed by the justices because it could not be proven, quote, that the woman was quick with child at the time. Commonwealth v. Bangs remained the ruling precedent in abortion cases in the United States for the next 60 years. In fact, there was no definitive method for verifying pregnancy
1: until 1926, when Cecil Vogue created the rabbit test for pregnancy detection, and it wasn't until the 1960s that the test was refined and could produce
0: accurate results. Does that have to do with pee? Mm-hmm. Or it's the rabbit's blood and I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> Sounds if the ra- legit. If the rabbit dies, <laughs> they, like, take... They inject yeah. the rabbit with, like, a woman's urine, and if the rabbit dies, then you're pregnant. <laughs> oh, like, no nice. shit. Like, no shit. Well,
1: that's, that's sort of... Remember, I think Avril and I did that bit, and there was a thing where you could, like, pee on grain, and if the grain sprouted, then you right. were pregnant, mm-hmm. and if you weren't... And that was actually true, but obviously, there's so many factors. It's not
0: accurate. Mm-hmm. Not, and is the sounds... rabbit thing true, too? Or... It is true. They, they did that up until... I don't know. No, I mean, I was just... They... I was just listening to an Aerosmith song. It's Sweet Emotion, and he's like... No, 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 because the rabbit didn't die, it? Like, so he's talking never about, thought about, yeah. That. I mean, so he's talking about somebody getting knocked up. Like, I mean, that's it. It, it lasted well into I think <clears throat> the sixties. Oh my gosh! Did, I mean, not did, was it really historical, but did it actually work? Like, it well, yeah, that's a how. With my normal yes. pee, yes, and then with Sarah's pregnant pee. Right? Are you pregnant? Are you no. Are you telling us <laughs> no, something? No, I'm not. <laughs> By the way, the rabbit died thing is an urban legend. What they, it, it did, they it was, it was an urban legend that was so entrenched in the psyche that the term "the rabbit died" means that so you're pregnant. Up here. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, so you can add this at the end or whatever that um, the phrase "the rabbit died" became shorthand for someone was pregnant. Uh-huh. But, but the rabbit, the rabbit did didn't actually, actually die. die. It okay. was like a a different
1: like a rabbit test. Life. Right, but well, a no, the rabbit test was real.
0: The rabbit test was real, but the rabbit didn't die. Like, it was didn't indicate. The rabbit didn't die to indicate oh, the interesting. It did something
1: else. Right, it probably had something to do with, like, rabbit their, hormones. It
0: had something or something. to do with Their ovaries. Yeah, they killed the rabbit to look to at, look at its the ovaries.
1: So the okay. rabbit did die. The
0: rabbit died, but it didn't die. It died the either way. Of the urine. Yeah. Right, it died either way. <laughs> the rabbit done not die. <laughs> 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 All right, come on, let's so go. I let's go. Oh, my God.
1: Let's get, it <laughs> was as accurate
0: as they had until un, until they had better tests. Right, yes. Um,
1: therefore, pregnancy wasn't an absolute certainty until the woman felt the quickening or movement of the fetus. This put the domain of pregnancy specifically in how women experience their bodies. Unfortunately, in the 19th century and the professionalization of medical practices, women's experience of their bodies became less important
0: than the knowledge of professional men. 19th century physicians increasingly attempted to separate themselves from lay healers and folk doctors by taking on the name regulars. These doctors tended to be graduates of prestigious medical schools or those that practiced with them. Regulars regarded their advancing position as important uh, as the field of law or theology, and they intensely opposed what they consider quack theories. In an attempt to protect their medical ideals and sources of revenue, regulars began pressing for increased legislation pertaining to medical practice. As a result, between the years of 1821 and to 1841, 10 of the 26 states in the Union enacted statutes in regards to abortion.
1: Connecticut became the first state to enact a law specifically pertaining to abortion in 1821. Section 14 of the law stated, quote, Every person who shall administer to any deadly poison or other noxious and destructive substance, thereby to murder or thereby to cause or procure the miscarriage of any woman, then being quick with child, shall be thereof duly convicted. This prescribed into law what had already been practiced in common law, and upheld in Commonwealth v. Banks, that a woman quick with child could not be given anything that would purposely cause abortion. By
0: 1851, ten states and one territory had enacted a laws uh, pertaining to abortion. Five states explicitly stated abortion was illegal after quickening. The other five states stated abortion was illegal at any time during the pregnancy. In reality, the laws were unenforceable, as there was no pregnancy tests at the time. It's interesting to note that there was no major coverage of the enactment of these laws and revisions in either the popular or the religious press. And that just reinforces the point that these were laws pushed by the medical profession to strengthen their professional clout. Interestingly, there was a surge in the volume of abortifacients advertised in papers and magazines during the 1840s, so at the time that these laws were being enacted. Abortion practitioners like Madame Rastel and Dr. Peter's French renovating pills were advertised in all major cities and some small-town papers, too.
1: I need a French renovating pill. <laughs> oh, you do, too. <laughs> no, i just just saying. It's just a funny name. The American Medical Association, the AMA, formed in 1847 as a professional nationwide organization for physicians. This group of regulars continued with increased fervor the push for enacting more abortion and general medical legislation. The AMA set out to influence legislation and public opinion. Regulars bemoaned the country's general demoralization, as attributed to the public's ignorance on quickening, doctors performing abortions to make money and retain patients, and lax laws against abortion. The AMA determined to deconstruct the prevalent quickening ideal among the general populace by lecturing their patients and producing books and manuals debunking the quickening doctrine. They largely succeeded, and by 1868, 30 of the 37 states in the union had abortion laws, and the common discourse on abortion was changing. Only three of the state laws deemed abortion after quickening a crime. Almost all of these laws held the woman receiving the abortion liable, as well as the practitioner, but it's important to point out that these crimes always carried lesser sentences than homicide cases.
0: The legislation pushed by regulars continued, and by 1880, every state in the Union except Kentucky had laws making abortion illegal at any stage except when deemed necessary for the woman's health. By a respected physician. So that's an important caveat there. Most laws also made the advertisement of abortion services or abortifacients illegal. The Comstock Act of 1873 drastically increased the regulation of advertising quote unquote women's services. And you can learn more about our friend Comstock in our selling sex episode that was part of our sex series a couple back.
1: Abortions were by no means eliminated as they were gradually pushed underground. At a time of increased scientific knowledge and ability to make abortions safer for women, many physicians were refusing to perform them, making illegal abortion increasingly more dangerous for women who needed them. But not all physicians refused to perform them. In fact, many AMA doctors routinely performed abortions for their private clients. And since one had to be well-off in order to afford a private doctor, this meant that wealthy women had access to abortion. Working-class women did not have the means to have that kind of access to private doctors, forcing them to more underground means, like the medical parlors that operated in cities like
0: Boston. After the suitcase was pulled from the Boston waters, weeks went by before any real progress was made in the suitcase mystery. There were a couple of false leads. The torso was thought to belong to a missing Boston woman until she promptly surfaced the next day. The police actually made an arrest on October 2nd. A man who worked as a clerk in a grocery store by the name of Samuel Winfield told police that his friend had just cut up a body. The police promptly arrested his friend, a Mr. William Hayes, who worked as a clerk in a shipping office. Mr. Hayes was interrogated at length and fully denied the charges. He said he had recently served on a coroner's jury and that his (laughs) dumb friend had gotten confused because he had told him about serving on the trial um and just to clarify a coroner's jury is basically a small jury summoned to see evidence from the coroner and then determine the type of death so like if it's like a suicide or a murder um these really aren't used that much anymore because honestly do you want joe schmoe analyzing your toxicology reports uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. that was late <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm laughing at the fact that you inserted laughter. <laughs> laughter. Um,
0: there you go. Laugh, please. Uh, but needless to say, Mr. Hayes was soon let go.
1: That's all you have to do is just tell me to laugh, and then this is funny. <laughs> oh, this is funny. <laughs> Boston detectives took the green suitcase to the manufacturer of the bag. The suitcase manufacturer looked at the bag and determined that the handle had been repaired by a harness maker which is so random. (laughs) Um, According to the New York Times, a suitcase repair by a harness maker was a pretty rare event, and so they were hopeful that the harness maker would be able to give them more details. Later, pawnbrokers would actually help police identify who purchased
0: the suitcases. Two East Boston machine workers also gave the detectives interesting leads. While working, they said they both looked out the second-story window of their shop, down onto the wharf, where they saw a man put a dark green suitcase into a rowboat. The man wasn't that noticeable, but they both remembered the incident because of the peculiar color of the bag and the fact that as the man put the bag into the boat, he seemed to struggle with its weight. That was hours before the body was discovered floating in the harbor. Nothing came of this quote-unquote eyewitness account either.
1: Then, on October 27th, four weeks after the dismembered torso was found in the suitcase, two arms and two legs were found in a second suitcase floating by the Charleston Bridge near what is today Paul Revere Park. Again, suspicion soared as the public grappled with the grisly findings. The Globe, latching onto the severe racism prevalent against Asian people during the period, interviewed the... Quote, white wife of a New York Mongolian who expertly asserted that the dismembered body was, quote, no doubt the wife of some Chinaman who had come into possession of some of the secrets of their murderous societies, unquote.
0: Awful. (laughs) So, yeah, so this turned out not to be the case, but it gives us a clue as to how a body that had had an abortion could be viewed as part of a criminal enterprise. Abortions were illegal. Obtaining them was illegal. So no matter that thousands of women successfully obtained abortions every month across the U.S., many under the care of licensed doctors, when an abortion went wrong and a woman's body that had had an abortion entered the public and legal space, it became criminal criminal. criminal by association
1: on october 30th six weeks after the first suitcase was found the body inside was identified the second suitcase held the key there were three rings on one of the hands in the case newspapers printed descriptions and pictures of the rings and they were soon identified by katherine geary as belonging to her daughter 20 year old susanna geary Geary was a performer with the Shepherd King Theater Company and had only been singing and dancing with them a few months before her disappearance. She was a chorus performer and went by the stage name Ethel Durrell.
0: As it turns out, Susanna's parents became increasingly worried as time passed that the body found in the first suitcase might perhaps be their daughter. Mrs. Geary called the police when she saw the description of the rings. She was quoted as saying, quote, I had not seen my daughter for seven weeks, and I have felt sure for some time that she was the victim in the case. She wore a chased gold ring on her little finger, and she also had an opal and a garnet ring, which I gave her as a birthday present five or six years ago. The chased ring is about 10 years old. When I saw these rings, I had no difficulty in recognizing them as those worn by my daughter. that's
1: so sad. Mrs. Geary and her husband, John Geary, also telegraphed Susanna's fiancé, Morris Nathan, secretary to the manager of the theater company, who was in Pittsburgh, and asked him to come back to Boston. Nathan refused, which prompted Susanna's father to reply, Come, or I'll come after you. Nathan promptly got himself legal counsel. However... Nathan was quickly arrested in Pittsburgh and held for questioning. And to reiterate how everyday racism permeated popular white American culture, let me read to you a newspaper article describing Nathan's arrest. Quote, The local police received instructions last night from the superintendent of police, Pierce of Boston to apprehend Morris Nathan and find out what he knew about the disappearance of Susan Geary, his sweetheart, whose dismembered body was found in the suitcase near Boston. Nathan, accompanied by manager B.A. Reinhold, stage director Samuel Forrest, and a Japanese, were arrested after a search of several hours in the Hotel Henry and taken to police headquarters. Nathan was unable to stand when he learned that Cole was from detective headquarters. He'd been crying for the past week and was so unnerved that Kimio, you know, the the Japanese, uh, and Forrest had to carry him to police headquarters, end quote. Yeah, so
0: Japanese there in quotations, like that's literally written in the paper. Right. Like, they, so you, they so again you know, had to reiterate the Japanese. You know, the
1: Japanese. Was, as I, opposed I just, to all those white people I know it Kimio. has, yeah,
0: it has nothing to do with the story. I just, when I come across that kind of, like, as historians, I know you guys probably all come across that, like, yeah. in reading. But, like, you, where do you put it? And I just had to put That's it in the podcast. Just in- FYI kind of thing. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. All right, anyway. Uh, so Nathan reported that he and Susanna were together for rehearsals in August. On September 9th, he directed her to a surgeon. Uh, notice how they can't say that they had had sex or were intimate or planned to get married even. Nope. They were just together. And then he directed her to a surgeon. So it's all very coded language. Um, after his arrest, the New York Times reported that Nathan was, quote, almost in a state of nervous collapse since his incarceration and has not slept or eaten. The members of the company believe him to be innocent of complicity in the murder. Yeah, okay, even though he didn't do anything once his girlfriend went missing, right? Yet, yeah, days after Nathan was brought to Boston and, quote, charged with the crime of abortion on the dead girl, another arrest was made.
1: On November 3rd, police arrested Dr. Percy McLeod, a graduate of Harvard Medical School. He was alleged to have dismembered Geary's body and was released on a $20,000 bond pending his trial on November 10th. Later the same day, a judge issued a warrant for Mrs. Mary S. Dean, who allegedly performed the abortion and ran a recuperation house on Winthrop Street, where Geary eventually died. Others were soon implicated and arrested. We're going to read you a long excerpt from the New York Times from November 3, 1905. Quote, the Boston suitcase mystery was solved yesterday when William Hunt, alias William Howard, a hypnotist and fortune teller, and Lewis Crawford, otherwise known as Albert H. Emery, a theatrical agent of Boston, were locked up at police headquarters, charged with homicide in connection with the deaths of Susanna Alice Geary, whose dismembered body was found in Boston Harbor.
0: And this is still the the new york times piece hunt made a confession to inspector o'brien admitting that he was one of the men who had helped to dispose of the body crawford while not denying the story told by hunt refused to have anything to say about the case until he had a chance to consult counsel crawford is the son-in-law of dr jane bishop a physician of 178 a tremont street boston After being arrested and put through the third degree at police headquarters last night, Hunt broke down and said he would confess to all that he knew about the Boston dress suitcase mystery. He said that he had been acquainted with Crawford, the theatrical agent, for about three years. On September 19th, he called to Dr. Bishop's office to see whether Crawford could get him a job on stage. Crawford made a a proposition to him to the effect that he could make some ready cash if he would call around at the doctor's house later that day. He called at 1 o'clock the afternoon, and Crawford told him that he had a dead body he wished to dispose of, saying that it was of a woman who had died in one of Mrs. Bishop's private hospitals. How much is there in it? Hunt says he asked Crawford, and Crawford replied, $100. I
1: love how you just go into, like, that, that accent that's like...
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, see? <laughs> like, yeah, <he's...
1: laughs> Um, no, exactly. What's that called again? The Atlantic, the Atlantic accent or yes, something? Yes, the transatlantic. The transatlantic
0: accent. The one you did for the accents episode. Uh-huh. Oh my like God. Robert Hepburn. It's just the way
1: she just read that whole thing. Sounds like that. <laughs> um, Crawford then made an appointment.
0: And to... this is still the, the newspaper. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Continuing, the the newspaper article says, Crawford then made an appointment to meet Hunt that night at Dr. Bishop's house and was told to go up to the second floor and knock on the door. He did so, but, receiving no answer, went back to the street and a few minutes later met Crawford. Crawford then led Hunt up to the second floor, opened a door with a latch key, and took him into a room where there were two suitcases on the floor. There was also a small hand satchel. According to Hunt's story, Crawford told him that the suitcases and satchel contained the body. The head was in the hand satchel, and Crawford explained the plan was to throw all three bags into the water from a ferry boat going from Boston to East Boston. Crawford also explained that the small satchel was loaded with shot, which he had purchased in a Boston hardware store. I picked up one of those dress suitcases, said Howard, in telling his story to the police last night, and Crawford picked up the small satchel containing the head. We then went down to go on board a ferry boat to East Boston, but there were so many lights around and so many people that Crawford suggested that we postpone the matter until a little later. We then went to Orient Heights by a roundabout way. We returned to the ferry and boarded one of the boats. After the boat got out a little way, we went over to the stern and dropped the satchels overboard.
0: And still from the same article, we went back to Dr. Bishop's office and got the other dress suitcase, which contained the woman's trunk. It was so heavy that it took the two of us to carry it. It was about nine o'clock when we left the Bishop office. We carried the suitcase to Tremont and Boylston Street, where we met a hackman named Howard. We hired Howard to take us over the ferry, this time going to Chelsea. The hackman wanted to help carry the bag, but Crawford wouldn't let him. We got on the boat and threw the suitcase overboard. We then returned to Boston and boarded a trolley car. Crawford got off near his home. I went on to Dudley Street, where I got off. Before parting that night on the car, Crawford told me to come back to Tremont Street office the following morning. Crawford was manager of the doctor's office there, and on the next morning, when I went to the office, Crawford gave me $60. He explained that was all the money the office had taken in and told me he would give me the remaining $40 later. Two days later, one of the suitcases was picked up from the water, and the newspapers were filled with the story of the murder.
1: It continues. I went to Crawford and told him I was going to get out of town and that I needed money. Crawford said he guessed he had better get out of town, too, as the newspapers were full of the thing. He then gave me $30. Both accomplices moved to New York City, where they lived for almost two months before being arrested. Shortly after Crawford's confession, the police divers scoured the bottom of the harbor for the handbag containing Geary's head. After a systematic search by divers, they produced the head. Susanna Geary's head was found in a small handbag on the floor of Boston Harbor, weighing down, weighed down by buckshot just as Hunt had confessed.
0: It's important to point out that this was a sensational story. Newspapers all over the United States followed this story really closely. Papers as far away as San Francisco updated their readers on the developing story almost as fast as Boston papers did. The New York Times did as well. With all of this public attention, Boston police felt like they had to do something about the flourishing trade in abortions taking place up and down Tremont and Boylston streets. What went on in these medical parlors had been quote, known to the police and the prosecuting authorities for a long time. On November 11th, the raids began. Police smashed windows and shattered door fronts as they entered more than 15 suspected abortion establishments.
1: Although these strong-arm tactics were a fairly common, if sporadic, way of cracking down on abortion, more often than not, the police targeted women themselves for information. Dying declarations increasingly became the crucial pieces of evidence in the policing of illegal abortions up until the 1930s. Women admitted to hospitals or on their deathbeds due to complications from illegal abortions were interrogated, often when near death, about their abortions. Because poor women were forced to use cheap and dangerous self-induced measures or inexpensive but unreputable abortionists, they were more likely to end up in the hospital with complications. These women were questioned about intimate details of their sexual life by male police, physicians, and hospital staff in order to provide prosecutors with information
0: about abortionists. Investigations into abortion-related deaths also caused pain and embarrassment for the women and their families. Police visited the houses of friends and family of deceased women who had given dying declarations. Newspapers hungry for scandalous stories would print the names and intimate details of women who had illegal abortions. Newspapers would sometimes hint that police had uncovered lists of women who had abortions when they confiscated an abortionist's records during raids. For example, on November 12th, a day after the raids in Boston, the newspaper stated that quote, although the raids did not result in any arrests, the police found considerable material which will aid them in the future. And that sounds pretty ominous to me. Um, But in regards to the suitcase murder specifically, newspaper reports confirm that the whole Shepard King Theatrical Company were rounded up and brought before the detectives to tell what they knew about Geary's abortion. A few of Susanna's female co-chorus line actors were even identified by name in the papers.
1: But these kinds of stories were salacious. They made headlines and sold papers, and so they continued. The Boston Globe wrote, quote, Not since the finding of the torso of the unfortunate Susanna Geary has public interest been aroused to such a high pitch as it was yesterday afternoon when the police, armed with five search warrants, raided the offices of alleged malpractitioners practitioners on Tremont Street, end quote. The paper went on to report that a crowd of thousands gathered in the street and jostled one another for a better view to watch the spectacle of the raids.
0: And there's actually newspaper pictures of that, of just people like jostling. Yeah, just crowded around watching them like raid these abortion clinics. Inside the office of Dr. Jane Bishop, police found a mask used to hide the face of the person who performed abortions. Quote, the mask consists of a complete head covering of black hair with long flowing black whiskers of the Burnside variety and a gauze covering for the remaining portion of the face that even the operator could not be identified by the color of his eyes was made certain. Interestingly enough, however, Susanna Geary's abortionist was a woman. Although the office belonged to Dr. Jane Bishop, the person who performed Geary's abortion was most likely Mary S. Dean, who, although had a warrant out for her arrest, was never found. Also, it was unclear if Hunt might have actually been the person who performed the abortion. During his trial, he admitted that he performed abortions at the house on Tremont Street and that he was under indictment for performing an illegal operation upon a woman in Philadelphia who also died.
1: Here's a little back and forth from the trial as recorded by the Chicago Tribune. Question. You and Mrs. Dean performed illegal operations in that office, didn't you? Answer. Yes. Question. How many did you perform? Answer. I do not know. Question. You performed them upon girls of all ages, didn't you? Answer. Yes. Question. You did not care how young they were, did you? Answer. No, sir. Question. What else did you do besides work at the bishop office? Answer. I was a supernumerary in the Shepherd King Company. Question. Did you perform an operation upon Miss Geary? Answer. No. I was at the theater
0: that afternoon. Right, so... Was he at the theater right, but anyway, so I think it's interesting just just to to put that in there that that there were numerous people right and this is somebody who abortions. has
1: admitted to performing abortion and killing illegally and... at this place and killing someone yeah. but he just didn't do this one just
0: just not this one
1: right <laughs> I, I was at the theater
0: that day right. <laughs> and then there's old morris nathan you know remember the guy who impregnated geary in the first place yeah
1: two first names not good
0: <laughs> so he admitted to police that quote he was responsible for miss geary's condition and that he endeavored to get her out of trouble again all coded language for uh, he got her pregnant and he helped her find an abortion Nathan was held in jail for two weeks and was released after a grand jury found no indictments against him the latter part of November 1905 was filled with the trial of Dr. McLeod and his accomplices William Hunt and Lewis Crawford What emerged from reporting during the trial shed light on how Geary spent her final days. After spending all of August
1: in Boston with the theatrical company and presumably her boyfriend, Nathan, Geary performed on stage for the final time on September 9th. After the show, Nathan directed Geary to a surgeon to undergo an abortion. We now know... That was the clinic or medical parlor run by Dr. Jane Bishop on Tremont Street in Boston and where Mary Dean performed the abortion. Purportedly. I guess we don't know for sure. After the procedure, Geary became very ill, and court records said she was likely suffering from septic poisoning. Essentially, that's complications from an infection. Um, Septic shock occurs when an infection overtakes your body and causes very low blood pressure. Septic shock can affect anyone uh, susceptible to germs that cause infection. And when linked with abortion, septic shock can be a dangerous complication. I mean, you can die from sepsis. Um, Essentially, it's just a bad infection. I mean, Right, at the, at the a blood infection. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. As Geary's condition quickly worsened, supposedly Mary Dean called in Dr. McLeod to save Geary's life. Apparently, Dr. McLeod attempted a second operation, but her condition only worsened. On September 18th, so about eight or nine days uh, since she had the initial abortion, Geary wrote a letter to her mother saying she was in Salem, Massachusetts, and she hadn't written because she had been sick with diarrhea. She asked her mother not to write her there and instead of forwarding any letters to save them for her at the house. She wasn't in Salem, however. She was just a few miles away from her mother at a house in Roxbury and mere hours away from her early death. She died on the morning of September nineteenth, nineteen 1905.
1: How old was she again? 20, like 21. Yeah, really young. According to newspaper accounts of the trial, Dean and Dr. McCloyd decided to dismember Geary and put her into three suitcases. Naturally, <laughs> naturally as, as one does. Naturally, <laughs> as one does.
0: <laughs>
1: um, then they offered $100 a piece to two men who were instructed to dump them in the Atlantic Ocean near Portland, Maine. Instead, as we read to you earlier, the men, Crawford and Hunt, opted to drop the cases from the East Boston Ferry. Not surprisingly, the suitcase containing Gary's torso surfaced in Witherup Harbor about 48 hours later.
0: So, total fail there.
1: (laughs) That's so bright, guys. That's something that you should not do if you're trying to get away with murder. (laughs) Yes, right. Uh,
0: What is surprising, however, is that Dr. McLeod was found not guilty. He was charged with being the person who did the dismembering. I mean, you'd think that would be the real crime here, right? During his testimony, Crawford testified that Dr. Mcloyd was the one who dismembered Geary's body in a bathtub. There was also other evidence that Mcloyd wasn't simply acting as a courageous physician called in at the last minute to help with a botched abortion. Emma Coulter, a nurse in the Bishop Hospital, testified that there were seven rooms in the house and there were often three patients in each of the rooms. She testified that Dr. McLeod attended patients there and she saw him attending to Geary. She said he always wore a white mask over his face so that he could not be recognized. Another professional nurse testified that McLeod called her to the house to assist with the unsuccessful operation. She did not mention the dismemberment.
1: Also, as one does, (laughs) doesn't mention the dismemberment. Um. But Mcloyd's defense rested on the fact that he was a regular, meaning he was an AMA, Harvard-educated doctor, which granted him a level of cultural capital that the other defendants in the case just didn't have. His defense pegged him as a heroic physician who swooped into a bad situation in order to save a helpless girl. Apparently, Mcloyd quote, pleaded that his obligation as a physician precluded his coming forward voluntarily in disclosing information gained by him in the discharge of his professional duties, End quote. Nevertheless, McLeod was acquitted of any crimes on December 2nd, apparently with the approval of those in attendance, as there was applause in the courtroom after the verdict was read.
0: Lewis Crawford and William Hunt, the two men who disposed of the suitcases containing Geary's dismembered body, pleaded guilty and were sentenced to prison. For months, police continued to search for Dean. The search took them to Portland, Maine, New York City, and Nova Scotia, but Dean was never found. Susanna Geary is buried in New Calvary Cemetery, just three miles from where she died.
1: Susanna Gary's body is actually Dean. And Susanna made off with someone else with two first names. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, but Susanna Gary is a woman's first name and a man's last name, so it's not like Ricky Bobby, which is two men's first (laughs) names. No, I meant because her boyfriend, boyfriend more Nathan. More Nathan.
1: All right. The suitcase mystery or the suitcase murder was a national phenomenon. Newspapers all over the country followed the story closely. It continued to captivate the public's imagination for about a decade or so afterward. There were even short stories written about the case. Immediately after the first suitcase was found containing Geary's torso, the Hearst tabloid Boston American printed a four-part Sherlock Holmes pastiche entitled The Suitcase Mystery. Now, a pastiche is a story that imitates the style or character of the work of another writer or artist. It celebrates the work it imitates, but in this case, it's really a form of plagiarism. Sounds like it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but apparently, writing these fake Sherlock Holmes stories was a pretty popular mode of writing during the period. The suitcase mystery was written by Jacques Futrell, who, interestingly enough, died on the Titanic. Holy crap. Yeah. That is, that's cool. Um, He put his wife and child in a lifeboat and was last seen smoking a cigarette on the deck of the ship with John Jacob Astor IV. In his home story, the dismembered body pulled from the harbor also suffered from a botched abortion and her body was cut up and hidden to protect the people involved. The four-part story concluded before the second suitcase was even found.
0: I love learning about people who died on the Titanic. Me too. (laughs) I went to the Titanic
1: Museum, and they give you a ticket, and you are a person. And I was Milvina Dean, which was the last living Titanic survivor. She was an infant. Oh, awesome. And she just died, like, a a few years ago or something. Crazy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I actually found out about this case in my own personal research that that I'm doing for my dissertation. Um, I'm currently working... I'm currently writing about single motherhood and the formation of the welfare state in the early 20th century. And one of the women that I study was speaking at a conference and she threw out the term suitcase murder and then just kind of went on because everybody in her audience uh, obviously knew what she was talking about. Um, And she was speaking in like 1908, I think. Uh, So, you know, immediately I had to go research and figure out what the hell she was alluding to. Um, And Kate Waller Barrett, this is the woman that I'm studying in her speech. um, She's bemoaning the way single mothers were treated in contemporary society. And she says that, you know, women wouldn't resort to abortions if there was a place in society for them. And she held up the suitcase mystery or the suitcase murder as a case in point, essentially saying that if motherhood wasn't such a burden on women, especially single m- women, um, both for the blow to a woman's reputation and logistically as a barrier to working for wages, that women wouldn't go out and seek abortions in the numbers they did. So this, you know, so, so the suitcase murder was, was used just in kind kind of, like, general every day. Like, I just kind of put that in there just to show that, like, she was able to throw this out at at a speech and, like, everybody knew exactly what she was talking about. Right, and so
1: that shows that some people were interpreting that way at the time. It's not just us interpreting. Right. Like, cause that we're oh, kind absolutely. of saying that too. Like, oh, well, if abortion wasn't so illegal, people wouldn't have, you know, yeah, no, space. I mean, that's one of the but, reasons
0: why I'm so fascinated with. Luna right. Cause she was number one way ahead of her time, but that's one of my arguments is she actually was not because she, she was head of a lot of stuff. Like she was a, a major figure and, and, right. and people, yeah, felt the same way. Like, so the whole, I mean,
1: pro choice wasn't a thing yet, but the whole sort of, pro-choice framework that we're interpreting this in it's something that women have been thinking about for a long time yeah so this case was a well-known phenomenon at least during the first decade of the 20th century but even as late as 1928 a copy of punch magazine made a joking reference to the 1905 suitcase murder punch magazine is that like one of those pulps like a pulp magazine
0: no, it I'm was trying. like a or like a real one. No, it's a magazine. Oh, like yeah. Gentleman's Punch. Like you you see a lot of like political cartoons and stuff come from Punch. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was just it was just like, I don't know, like maybe it like New Yorker with or something like that. The Atlantic, mm-hmm. something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the 1905
1: suitcase murder. So that's I think that's all we have for this episode of Dig. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram at Dig underscore history. Rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe if you'd like. Or whatever app you listen to podcasts on. Um, drop us an email if you have any questions and we'll read it on air. And we hope you join us again soon. org is our main website. You can get transcripts. You can listen to our shows. You can read our bios. Mm-hmm. All the good stuff. Yep, all of it. So right. thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. She was a chorus performer and went by the state name state oh stage. <laughs> she was a chorus performer and went by the stage mate
0: <laughs> Stage <laughs> Stage
1: And lacks laws against abortion. Abortion. <laughs>
0: Read the whole thing. His <laughs> name's Morris
1: Nathan. Okay. Are you sure? I'm
0: positive. Two first names. He sounds like an asshole. Morris Nathan. I know okay. he's like, he
1: would rather <laughs> have some
0: Morris. Right. For oh, sure. my darling Morris.
1: <laughs> my darling Morris. Um <laughs> Morris refute. Oh, <laughs> you can read it
0: correctly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you can read it correctly from now on. Or i do not.
1: No, she's like I'm angry. Her copy, sorry. The copy is incorrect. I I don't know the story. Um, Nate, (laughs) we always get like this with the last one. That's why the last one that I edited where it was the two of you. It was the last one we did after four, and you were you she you were getting so (laughs) mad, like at herself because she kept saying us. (laughs) Oh my god. Okay.